Well, we're going to go to the Lord together now in prayer. And as we do, we're going to pray, especially for those who have been caught really in the heart of Hurricane Michael and homes, lives lost, communities destroyed. So let's go to God together now in prayer. Lord, you are our keeper. You are the shade on our right hand. You keep our going out and our coming in, both now and forever. You are a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And this morning, God, we bring to you those whose lives and communities have been caught up by trouble. At times, your creative power is overwhelming. And God, we pray for those whose um, hearts, bodies, and communities are broken by Hurricane Michael. God, I pray uh, there are communities still in our area healing from Hurricane Florence and then uh, Hurricane Michael. And so, God, I pray that you will give hope, and I pray that at this time the light of Christ would shine brightly, that people's eyes would be lifted to the Lord, their helper, that they would see that you are our help and strength. We thank you for City Life Church, a church plant here in Mount Pleasant. God, I pray for that congregation, for Pastor Aaron, that the gospel would be clearly taught and clearly lived out among them, that they would bless our city and help all people know that Jesus is their king. We bring before you this morning Senator Lindsey Graham and ask God that you would help him lead in a way that reflects your good authority in the way he legislates and leads, that he would show that you are king. And for the Lozi people in Zambia, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see that Jesus is their only hope, that as the deer pants for streams of water, so they would long for you. And we thank you for Earl and Susan Baham. God, I thank you for the many ways that they have served and do serve here. God, I pray that you will bless them in their life, in their ministry, in their work, in their marriage, that they would grow increasingly to reflect the love and character of our Savior, Jesus. And we think of those in our congregation who are hurting. We continue to pray for John Fletcher and Ron Shearer, for Sally and Troy Evett. God, I pray that you will give them strength, that their hope would be in you. God, we thank you for answering prayers for healing, but also ask that you would give sustaining grace. And for us, God, that we ask that you would help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, that we would do this with humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would bear with one another in love that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And as we come to your word, God, show us the true meaning of discipleship, that we would be the kind of people who are willing to leave all and follow you, that we would know that Jesus is a king worth trusting because he stood in our place and took the penalty for our sin. And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. John, I was surprised to see you sitting here this morning. It is so good to see you, brother. It was an encouragement to sing with you, and so thankful that you're able to be here and that God is answering our prayers for you. So uh, we thank him for the answered prayers. Yep, good to see you. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to finish this chapter this morning as we look at what it means to answer Jesus' call. We'll be in verses 12 through 25 of Matthew 4. And this morning we'll see that Jesus is a king worth following. Jesus is a king worth following. I'll begin reading in Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Well, Matthew repeatedly makes the point, he has and he will make it again, that God is faithful to his word. And this morning he does that by quoting from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, perhaps at Christmas you've heard uh, or gone and seen the Messiah. If you don't know the Messiah, the whole thing, you've certainly heard the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. You know that. Because if you haven't seen it, you've at least heard it on a commercial. It's so well known in pop culture that it's become part of everything. But that's part of what's called an oratorio, a piece of music that's long and tells the story through from the Old Testament to the end of time that Jesus the Messiah has come. Well, the Hallelujah Chorus is certainly the most famous part of the Messiah, but there's also a part in there that quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Well, that is the passage that Matthew quotes here this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, and there's another part in there, and I'm I'm not going to sing the whole thing. Do not worry. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. And it's this chapter that Matthew quotes for us this morning. Well, following Jesus' baptism and then his temptation, he remains in the wilderness of Judea, here in southern Israel. So the map of Israel works from the Sea of Galilee at the top to the Dead Sea at the bottom and the Jordan River in between. Well, Jesus is still following this time, following the temptation in the wilderness of Judea in southern Israel. Well, things heat up. As you remember, John is a pretty provocative uh, preacher, and so he upsets people. Well, John gets arrested. And as history and the Word of God tell us, he eventually will be executed for the message that he preaches. Well, Jesus isn't afraid to die for his faith either, for the message that he has to proclaim, but that time hasn't yet come. So Judea is now stirred up, it's a bed of unrest, and so he travels into northern Israel, back to the town of Nazareth, where he was from. His father Joseph, his town, this is their hometown, this is where Joseph is known for being a carpenter. Jesus is raised here, people see him here, he grows up here. Well, Luke chapter 4 tells us a story of what happens when Jesus goes home. He walks back into his hometown synagogue, the place where Jews would gather to worship. And when he walks in there, he, he reads from a passage in Isaiah in the Old Testament. He reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he follows that prophecy of Isaiah by saying out loud, today these words are fulfilled in your sight. What he's saying is this prophecy about the Messiah, I am here, I'm the fulfillment of it. I'm here to set the captive free. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm here to heal the blind that give them sight. Well, when people hear this, now imagine this. This is just like one of the little kids you see running around here. I mean, they have seen little Jesus raised up from a young boy. They've seen him grow up. Now he's an adult and he's standing there and in their sight he says, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am here. Well, the people respond to this gladly. Initially, they're glad at what he says because they're hoping that he's here to deliver them from all of their problems. But then Jesus says something else and this upsets them. So he says, okay, the promised one is here, I am he. But then he tells them a story, and it's a story from the Old Testament. You may or may not remember, there's a story in our Old Testaments about a man named Naaman. Now, Naaman is a Syrian general, but he contracts leprosy. Now, leprosy is sort of the, uh, the, the early version of, it's not the same, but of cancer, Alzheimer's. It's an incurable disease. Once you get it, you're done for. And so no one wants to hear this word. And so he hears about a powerful prophet named Elisha, and he hears that Elisha can heal him. And so he travels to the land of Israel, and he asks to be healed. And as the story goes, Elisha tells him, you must go and be washed in the Jordan River seven times, and then you'll be healed. And initially he's upset, doesn't want to do it, but he responds, eventually submits to the word of the Lord, goes, he's washed, he's healed, and life is good. Well, Jesus tells this story, but he points out, There are many lepers in Israel in Elisha's day, but only one is healed. And it's not an Israelite, it's a Gentile, it's a Syrian, it's a man actually who was here oppressing you people, and his name is Naaman, and he's healed. And when he says this to those people, they get angry. He's there in his hometown, and what he's saying is, you think you're special because you're ethnic Jews. But what you don't understand is that ultimately a relationship with a true God is always about submitting to his word in faith. And in this story, the story of Naaman, Naaman is the one who gets delivered from his problems because he responds to God's word by faith. Well, this makes them angry and they want to kill him. So they take Jesus, take him out of town, and they're going to kill him. And then God miraculously delivers him. As as Luke 4 tells us, he walks through the crowd untouched and, and gets away. God delivers him from that moment. Well, at this point, Nazareth isn't really a safe place for Jesus to be either. So he travels now to this town, the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum is where Jesus is really going to center the rest of his life and ministry here leading up to his crucifixion. So he's still in the region of Galilee, but he's moved from kind of the, uh, the kind of countryside town of Nazareth to the seaside city of Capernaum. And Capernaum is a fishing village, and it's here, he's traveled this, this all happens really in the first verse here, that Jesus travels from uh, uh, Judea to Nazareth to Capernaum, and it's here that we find Jesus really for the rest of his ministry. Well, Capernaum is part of a land belonging to two tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, those are kind of weird words, but they're not just words. They're names of Israelite tribes. Well, those tribes really aren't at the center of what God is doing in Israel. So you've got the tribe of Levi, you've got the tribe of Judah. Those are kind of big, important tribes, even the tribe of Benjamin. But the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali, they're mostly forgotten. And not only are they forgotten, they're in backwater nowhere. If you live in that area... You know nothing and you got nothing. 
I mean, you're, there's, no, there's no cultural influence. I mean, you're the backwater, the backside of the backwater place. I mean, no one wants to stay there from Zebulun and Naphtali from these areas. Well, that is where Capernaum is. And so it's a place of religious, cultural, and social darkness. If you're from there you, you, and you show up in the city, everyone knows you're a country boy and you ain't got no clue. So Jesus goes there, and what happens here is that what happens, he, he fulfills this prophecy. He goes to the land of cultural and religious darkness. Capernaum, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and he brings the light of the good news of the kingdom there. The people that walk in darkness, these country people who don't know nothing, and he brings them light. The people who walk in darkness now have seen a great light. On them a light has dawned, and it's here in this place of darkness that Jesus begins his ministry. And so this brings us to Jesus' message, the good news of the kingdom. Well, the words that Jesus comes and preaches in chapter 4, verse 17 are identical to a message we've already seen. If you were to flip back a chapter to the beginning of uh, Matthew 3 and look at verse 2, you'd see the same words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Identical message, two different preachers. In chapter 3, it's John the Baptist. In chapter 4, it's Jesus. But there's continuity here. The message is the same. True encounters with God, with the God of the Bible, cannot leave us unchanged. The good news of the gospel has always included repentance. And repentance is a radical change of heart that results in a radical change of life. In other words, God changes us from the inside out, and it changes the way that we live. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. It's a turning. So it's a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. It's the same action. It's not a different one, but turning to faith in Christ is turning away from sin. We see Jesus referencing his message again in verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what then is this gospel, the good news of the kingdom? I mean, gospel is a word that literally means good news. But Matthew's gospel is the only one that uses this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Others talk about the gospel, but don't describe it in just this way. Well, What is Matthew highlighting about Jesus' message? He's highlighting that it's a message from a king, a king with a kingdom. Well, there are various aspects of God's character that we see displayed in the gospel. So, for instance, we see God's justice and holiness displayed in the fact that Jesus must die to pay the penalty for sin. But we also, in the gospel, see see God's love and grace displayed in the fact that Jesus is willingly to, willing to graciously give his life for sinners in love. So we see God's justice and God's grace, and here we see God's authority, the, the fact that God has the right to rule people. He's a king with a kingdom. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is a king and thus has the right to rule. So if you remember, Matthew's, Matthew 1 and 2 established the idea that Jesus is in the kingly line of David and has the right to rule God's people. So Jesus' message is the good news of the king, the good news about the kingdom. The king is here, and he has a right to rule your life. When God saves someone, he delivers that person from the penalty their sin is due. He delivers us from hell. But if we merely view salvation as a quick ticket out of hell and don't understand that it's a relationship with the king of kings, then perhaps we miss the essence of what it means to truly follow Christ. It's the good news of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of the kingdom. The king is here. He has a right to rule these people and he has a right to rule our lives as well. 
This king is a king who heals, but he also requires submission. He reigns over all things. Philippians 2 tells us that everyone who doesn't bow the knee in this life will bow the knee in the next. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All creation points to this moment. All creation points to the coming king. God created all things good. He looked at it and he said, that's good. But our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, sinned, broke God's law, and in breaking God's law, broke God's creation. Well, as we come to, through Scripture, the, the story of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 all the way to the book of Matthew is a story. It's looking, for, it's looking for a solution. It's looking for a way to fix this problem. It's looking for a way to fix the brokenness. And Romans 5 connects some dots for us. Paul writes there and he says, the first Adam sinned. And in so sinning, sin entered the world and death through sin so that all have sinned. In other words, we're all born into this world in a, in, a, in a state of broken relationship with God because we're all born sinners just to condemned under the law of God. But Romans 5 doesn't stop there. He talks about the first Adam, but then he says, but the second Adam came and through him life and grace and deliverance came. And so if all have sinned, through Adam, much more will you receive grace and life through Jesus Christ. He lived a perfectly righteous life in our place, and all who turn from their sin and rebellion and turn to faith in him will be delivered from the penalty of their sin and from the power of sin. Romans 5 tells us this as well, that we're born into this world, and because we're sinners, we're enemies with God. But through Jesus, we are reconciled to God. In other words, God makes his enemies his friends through faith in Christ. And so God no longer looks at us as enemies to be conquered, but friends to be welcomed, friends to be embraced, people who are loved. He even calls us his children. And so if you are here and you don't know God by faith in Jesus, would you turn from seeking your own way and would you call out to him and him alone to save you? Would you trust Jesus today? That's the message of the king. He's here to save you. He's come to change your life. We also see Jesus' ministry here. Verse 23 tells us that there are three essential aspects to Jesus' ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Verse 23 says that Jesus is teaching in their synagogues. Well, we normally think of synagogues as a Jewish house of worship. Well, and this is certainly true that it's a place where Jews gather for worship. But beyond that, more broadly speaking, synagogue means a place where people assemble or they gather together. In other words, Jesus goes from village to village or city to city, and he heads straight to the place where there are the most people, where everyone gathers together, and he begins teaching them. He's not here just teaching them any word. He's teaching them, we know from Scripture as well as from Jewish history, he's teaching them the law of God. In fact, it was a common thing for traveling teachers to go into a village and begin teaching the people there, but they had a specific message they were to teach, and that was to teach how to interpret the word of God itself. Well, Luke chapter 4, I referenced earlier, Jesus reads from Isaiah, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what he's doing is he's opening the Old Testament, he's teaching from it, and then he's interpreting it for them, helping them understand what they're hearing. Well, Matthew says in verse 23 that Jesus goes throughout all Galilee. Now, Galilee is a relatively small region. It's only 70 by 40 miles. It's not that big but it's densely populated. So the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that at this time in this area, there are some 204 cities and villages with populations over 15,000. 
So in other words, day after day after day, Jesus could travel from village to village, city to city, and teach thousands of people and expose hundreds and thousands of people to his message. So Jesus is traveling from place to place, teaching uh, the gathered people. A couple of years ago, I took a, a trip, a mission trip, to teach pastors uh, in the Middle East, in the Republic of Georgia, and Azerbaijan. And, uh, and as I was there, I was there to train pastors. But when I would go from place to place, one thing I learned is they do something a little bit uh, culturally different than what we do here. The minute they knew that there was a traveling preacher there, it didn't matter if I was in a living room, a coffee shop, a classroom, or a church, they would say, oh, everyone sit down and they have me, and like, okay, go ahead and teach us. And the first time, I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready for this. I didn't know it was going to be like an on-the-spot go. You know, I just, I just was not, not prepared. Now, after this, I had a little bit of a clue, and then I was like, okay, i got to have something to say. Because at first, I'm like, I don't know your language. I don't know your culture. What do I have to tell you? But in their culture, if there's a traveling teacher, a traveling preacher, he comes in, and they invite him to teach. That's what they do. It's a courteous thing. Well, first-century culture is very much that way. So what would happen is there were people who were traveling teachers, and when they would show up in your village, you would invite them to teach or to preach. Now, on a day where you don't have Facebook, ESPN, cable, TV, internet, anything like this, the day the traveling teacher shows up in your town is the best day of the week, probably the best day of the month or six months, because there's actually something to do. When you gather with people at the end of the day, and there's a guest teacher, a guest preacher there, and it's the biggest show in town. And so people gathered, Jesus would go from city to city, village to village, and he'd go there, and they'd invite him to teach or preach, and this is what he would do. So he goes right to the heart of each city, right to the place where people would gather, and he begins teaching the people. We also see another word here describing Jesus' ministry, and that's the idea of preaching or proclaiming good news. Teaching is a systematic walking through material. It's, it's taking material and kind of explaining it, unfolding it, you might say exposing it so that people can understand what's there. Preaching is an idea that's connected to that but slightly different. Maybe we could understand it uh, this way. It's been some time since I watched through this and there was a time when the age of our girls meant that this was the favorite movie in our house. That day has passed a little bit but I can still remember it well. I think it was, I don't know, the 1940s or 50s that the classic Disney cartoon version of Cinderella came out. A dream is a wish, your heart makes... Do you know that? Okay, so, so there's this version of Cinderella, and, and what happens is, as the story goes, there's this glass slipper, and they have to find out who the glass slipper belongs to. Well, at the end of this cartoon, uh, there's a knock on the door, knock, 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 and then this guy outside says in a rather silly voice, open in the name of the king. Well, that guy's a herald. He's not really there to, he, and he opens a scroll and he reads this proclamation from the king about finding, about finding the slipper. Everyone kind of falls asleep. It's a very long message. Well, his job is to proclaim the king's message. That's, that's what preaching is, essentially. It's taking someone else's message and broadcasting it, proclaiming it. I thought, well, Harold's a little bit removed from us culturally, so maybe it's like this. This is a first century broadcast of the gospel. It's taking a message and trying to broadcast it, get it out to as many people as possible. Jesus is proclaiming, publicly broadcasting the good news that the king is here. So he's teaching people, but then he's also, he's got this kind of broad, scattered message proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Well, the final aspect we see of Jesus' ministry is that of healing. Again in verse 23, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Then verse 24 tells us that his fame spread throughout all Syria. So we said 
Galilee is a relatively small region. A lot of people there, but relatively small. This is a much broader, his fame is spreading far and wide. I mean, every person they bring to him, every disease, every affliction, anyone demon possessed, he heals them all. There are no limits to Jesus' power or Jesus' authority. One thing I love about this is that Jesus' healing ministry shows us that not only does the gospel deal with our biggest problem, which is our sin against God, it will ultimately deal with every problem that we have. This is why we get to the end of history in the book of Revelation, and there will be no more crying, no more death, no more sickness, no more sadness, because Jesus deals with sin itself, and he deals with all of the effects of sin. Jesus' healing ministry shows that his preaching ministry, his teaching ministry, that his words are true. The kingdom of God has come. The king is here, and he proves it by healing anyone and everyone who comes to him. And so before we move on, I want to simply note quickly that the word comes first, and then there's this fruit of good works from the word. To properly share the gospel, we must do it with the words of God. But then often people are looking and they're like, I hear your message, but what, they, what do they want to know? Don't tell me, show me. Now you can't get to the gospel without the words of the gospel. But you also don't have a clear gospel if you don't have people that live out the gospel through their life, through their good works. So from the root of our faith in Christ grows the fruit of good works. And Jesus' ministry itself is that way. He preaches and proclaims a message, but then he goes throughout cities and villages healing the people. And so finally, we look at what it means for Jesus to call his disciples. His call is, follow me. Well, verses 18 to 22 tell us about Jesus calling the first disciples, first Peter and Andrew, brothers, and then James and John. So two sets of brothers here. Well, at chapter 10, Jesus is going to have 12 disciples, and that's what we know him more famously for. But here, he calls these first four. And it's at this point that I should defer to... uh, Uh, Clayton and Tucker or Bill and Harry because we're going to talk fishermen here for a second. I don't know that much about it. But if you want to know more about it, it, you can see any of those or any number of other men who know a lot more about it than I do here this morning. These men make their living catching fish with nets in the Sea of Galilee. So remember the town of Capernaum, it's a fishing town. It's right by the sea and so there would be many people there who make their living by fishing. So Jesus, it's, it's cool, we see this throughout his life. He's good at connecting with people right where they are. And so he goes and he sees these men and they're fishermen. And so what does he do? He connects with them in their line of work, in their place, and he says, you're going to go from from fishing for fish to fishing for men. Now I imagine, now we we hear this today, and you know, I don't know if they still sing it. There was a song that I learned when I was a kid, you know, I will make you fishers of men. And and it was just, it was a song, it's so familiar to us. But imagine the first time Jesus said this, this strikes them as very weird. So I'm going to go from throwing my net on fish to throwing it on people. This almost sounds like some weird scheme to drag people into this. But what Jesus is doing is he's using a metaphor to help them picture what they are going to do. There's no doubt that I'm sure they don't understand everything that Jesus is asking them to do. But there's one thing that they do understand, and that that this is a call to action. So if you look at verse 20, you see that immediately they left their nets and followed him. This wasn't like, take some thought, think about it tomorrow. It's come, follow me, and they do it. Verse 22, same thing. James and John, immediately they left their nets and their father and followed him. Well, in verse 25, we see another group of people following Jesus. Matthew tells us there are great crowds following him. Well, what is it that distinguishes true disciples 
from the crowds. Because the crowds will leave. The crowds are there for the show, but they aren't ultimately following Jesus. We see something modeled here in the lives of Peter, Andrew, James, and John that we see Jesus teach clearly in other places. And that is the cost of discipleship. These men are fishermen. What do they know? They know how to fish. How do they provide for their families? By fishing. How do they make their livelihood? Fishing. Not only that, they leave not only their nets, but James and John, we see, left their father. They abandoned their livelihood and their families for the sake of following Christ. Well, Jesus will later teach in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The key to finding your life in Christ is being willing to lose everything else for the sake of knowing Jesus. We live in a time and place in history where this is a little bit harder to connect to our lives than it is in some places. We live in a world where following Christ probably, for most of us, for some of us might, but for most of us it doesn't mean that we lose our jobs or livelihood. It may not mean that we are abandoned by our family or must leave our family. But even in our world today, there are millions, even billions of people that for them to follow Christ means that they must leave everything that they know be disowned by those they love most and cast out. Some even killed for the sake of Christ. I mean, just this last week, an American pastor was released from prison in Turkey. An American pastor, with diplomatic pressure from the United States, imagine that you're a Turkish pastor preaching the gospel and what that will cost your family. The cost of discipleship looks different from place to place, but the point is always the same. Jesus has a right to rule our lives and is worth forsaking for everyone and everything else. As Jesus himself said, if we gain the whole world but lose our souls, what do we have in the end? And what do our lives teach about discipleship? If following Jesus changes nothing about you, it changes nothing about the way you invest or spend your money. It changes nothing about the way you invest or spend your time. It changes nothing about your relationships. Perhaps it's possible that we haven't understood what it means to follow Jesus. If it sounds to you like Jesus is asking a lot, you're not wrong. He's asking a lot of us. He asks us to give up our rights, even our very lives, for the sake of following him. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's this somehow mysterious relationship between losing our life and finding our life. This doesn't quite make sense to us. But the point is that God's people, of all people, shouldn't be the kind of people who view their relationship with God through the lens of their rights, through the lens of what God owes them. And it's easy for me to think of this in terms of if someone showed up one day and put a gun to my head and said, do you believe in Jesus or not? To hope that in that day I would be faithful. To hope that in that day I would have the courage and devotion to Christ to be willing to stand 
And I don't know if that day is coming or not. I hope if that day comes, I hope I have the courage to boldly proclaim my faith in Christ. But where I live today is, am I willing to give up my rights for the sake of serving those I love? God's call to me as a husband today is to die to myself for the sake of loving and serving my wife in the same way that Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. There's no one holding a gun to my head today, but my, my problem this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning is, will I give my life for the sake of those God calls me to love? The question for me today isn't, is someone pointing a gun at me and saying, will you stand for Christ? The question is, will I give my life in service to my kids? When I want my way, when I get home and I'm tired and I want to do my thing, am I willing to lay aside my rights for the sake of those I love? But this isn't just true for husbands and wives at home. It's, it's true in churches too. As members of churches, the, the, the way we look at our relationship with God isn't ultimately about a bill of rights that God owes us. It's that as people redeemed, the captive set free, good news for the poor, the blind, the blind have their eyes opened. And are we willing to love and serve the King of Kings in the way that he has loved and served us? He himself set aside all of his rights. If there's anyone with a right, it's Jesus, a right to demand, you can't touch me. And yet he let himself be grabbed by grimy, stinking human hands and nailed to a cross for my sin, for our sin. And yet I have the boldness to think that God owes me anything. God owes me nothing. But in love and grace and mercy through Jesus, he has redeemed me. He has taken people who are not his own, and he calls them his people. He calls them his children. He takes people who are shaking their fists in the face of God, yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and he offers to them eternal life through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a bill of rights. We have a bill of service, a chance to serve the King of Kings, the one who set aside his kingly glory for the sake of those he loves. And a king who can heal all diseases and cast out demons is a king worth trusting. The question for us is, can we trust a king who is both good and sovereign and understand the way these things work together? And the test for us may not be whether we say we trust him. It might be that, but it might be, will I trust him with my finances? When I don't understand how this works together, but God says the gospel changes me in a way that I generously and sacrificially demonstrate that I'm God's by the way I give? Or will it change the way I relate to the people around me? Like rather than walking in the door and saying, serve me, am I willing to love and serve their, the people that are there? Or our battles with lusts, or our battles with fear, when we're captivated by the fear of what people around us think? Will we care more about what the king thinks or about what the people around us think? So Jesus has done all these things, but ultimately he is worth trusting because he stood in our place and took the penalty for our sin. Because at the end of the day, whether in that moment you say yes or no, you're a Christian or not a Christian, no matter whether you pass or fail that particular test, which may or may not come, whether that day ever comes, the truth is we all fail in our discipleship. I mean, the things I'm talking about here, loving and serving— you're going to fail at that. If you don't today, you will tomorrow. And if you don't tomorrow, you will the day after that. And so the point of Jesus' sacrificial love for us is when we follow him, he does something remarkable. 
we follow him. He calls us to follow him, but every time we step and we step out of line, he steps in line for us. He perfectly fulfills God's will for us. When our faith falters, Jesus' perfect faith stands in our place. When we take a second look and we know we deserve condemnation under the law of God, Jesus' perfect purity will fulfill all righteousness in our place. When we fear the people around us rather than loving and fearing God, Jesus' perfect love and courage will stand for us in our place. Someone who is perfect but will take our punishment and give us his perfection is someone worth trusting and someone worth following. He's worth giving all that we have. He's worth following with all that we are. He is a king worth trusting and worth serving. Jesus' call to us today is the same as it was to these disciples. Come, follow me. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is a king worth following. So let's follow him together. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk with God personally, and then I'll close of this moment in prayer. Let's pray to God. God, we thank you that we serve a king who set aside his kingly glory and humbled himself as a servant in love for us. God, I pray that you help us follow him and live lives that demonstrate that he is our king. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time now where we give an opportunity to respond in specific ways. If there is any way that we can pray with you or encourage you, we would love to do that. If you'd like to follow the Lord by uh, joining yourself in committed membership to this local congregation, we would love that as well. Uh, If you'd like to follow the Lord in baptism, we'd love to talk with you about that or just talk with you about Jesus or pray with you and encourage encourage you. I'll be standing here at the front and available for you if that would be something that would serve you well. Would you stand please to your feet? We'll sing together as we respond to the word.